Brothers and sisters, if you don't change your ways, you are on the road to Jam Nation. Editorial note, this episode was originally published to Spotify on December 4th, 2022, and has now since been re-edited to replace full songs with song clips in order to publish this on other streaming services beyond Spotify. There may be references in this episode to events and dates that well precede the episode publish date on any podcasting platforms that are not Spotify. And there may be references to songs which have since been replaced by song clips. I just don't want anybody to be confused. Now, let's move on to the episode. Enjoy! Welcome, my friends, to the second episode of Road to Jam Nation. For those of you that are new, I would recommend going back and listening to my first episode before continuing with this second episode, because on the first episode, I already make a pretty detailed explanation of exactly what sort of content and approach that I'm taking to this podcast, and also because currently in the podcast, I'm reviewing the albums of 1973, and I began that process on the first episode covering a lot of the easy listening and singer-songwriter and folk-style albums of the year. Uh, For this episode, I'll be moving on now. My first segment will be covering funk music, and as an introduction to that, the song we heard at the very beginning of this episode was Soul Vaccination by Tower of Power. So let's go ahead and dive into the music. Funk music was in its golden era in 1973, and funk music makes a strong showing within the albums that I selected for my actual top 20. In 1973, funk music was pumping out a steady supply of outstanding new bass and drum grooves, but there were also ambitious new directions in the music. As the sophisticated world of jazz had begun embracing funk as part of its jazz fusion movement, funk musicians in turn were increasingly embracing the possibilities of jazz to open up new paths for the funk to dance down. I had to cut a whole lot of outstanding funk albums in order to achieve my top 20. Some of the albums that I listened to that did not make my top 20 includes Tower of Power, who I already mentioned, provided the song that I led this episode off with. That song was from their third album, which was self-titled as simply Tower of Power. This third album from the band introduced a new lead vocalist, Lenny Williams. And the album produced the band's biggest pop crossover hit with the song So Very Hard to Go. So 
It also contained This Time It's Real, which was a mid-level hit on the R&B charts. Interestingly, the song What Is Hip, which has now grown to be one of the group's most very popular and widely covered funk classics, only achieved a number 39 ranking on the R&B charts in 1973. Personally, I'm not sure what people were listening to because that is an outstanding song and would certainly compete for a top 20 spot if I were listing my 20 favorite songs rather than my 20 favorite albums. You ain't just exactly sure what's hip. Started to let your hair go. Spend big bucks to cop your wardrobe. But somehow you know there's much more to the trip. What is hip? Tell me, tell me. I ultimately wound up cutting this album off of my top 20. While the band's upbeat horn-based numbers are quite fabulous, I can't say that I think that the ballads on the album have particularly aged well. 1973 is when Funkadelic released their fifth album, Cosmic Slop. And like most Funkadelic albums, Cosmic Slop is end-to-end great listening. But I have to say that the album didn't really have a one specific standout moment for me. It all just sort of clumps together into a consistently fun listen from beginning to end. But in a year like 1973 that had so many really standout moments, I couldn't find a way to put Cosmic Slop into my top 20, though it did certainly get consideration. Sly and the Family Stone released their sixth album in 1973. The album was titled Fresh, and I consider this to be really the last good Sly and the Family Stone album. I've heard some people describe this album as being one of the band's best, but in my opinion, it's already clear that the band is beginning to lose its focus. Though I will say that their song, If You Want Me to Stay, is certainly one of their very best career highlights. When you shape me again, I hope you have been the kind of person you really are now. I'll be so good, I wish I could get the message over to you now. Curtis Mayfield followed up his outstanding 1972 soundtrack album, Superfly, with a new album in 1973 called Back to the World. This album sounds very much like it, too, could have been intended as another film score, but with Mayfield fully in control of the content of his storyline. However, while compositionally sophisticated, there's no songs on this album that are nearly as memorable as anything from his Superfly work although the album did produce 
three R&B hits. We got to stop. Rufus made their debut self-titled album in 1973. On their debut album, the band wasn't solely focused around Shaka Khan's vocals, though her vocal talent does shine through anyway on every single piece of vocal work that she does, either in a backup role or on lead vocals. But the focus on the album was obviously around their leader at the time, Ron Stockert. Stockert would leave the band after this album which allowed Shaka Khan to step forward to lead them in new directions. On this debut, Stockert seems to be trying to compete with Sly Stone, and it's a good enough effort to be worthwhile of that comparison, though the album was not particularly a commercial success. I struggled with whether or not to classify War's sixth album, titled Deliver the Word, as a funk album. Deliver the Word was a follow-up to War's landmark 1972 album, The World is a Ghetto. But on this latest album, the band took a much more mellow soul jazz type of direction. It is beautifully rendered music, and it was another big sales success for the band. The best song from the album is Gypsy Man, and the song, in my opinion, is much better in the fully fleshed out album version, which is a little over 11 and a half minutes long, than in the hit single version that was released, which was a little less than five and a half minutes. Ultimately, I personally would have liked a bit more energy on at least a couple more tracks on this album. As a whole, it wound up being a little bit too mellow for me. Earth, Wind & Fire were still trying to find their commercial success in 1973. And they got their first real taste of it with their fourth album, Head to the Sky, which reached number 27 on the album charts and produced two mid-sized R&B hits. The song Evil has a Latin beat style to it that gives a sense of the disco style of funk that the band would ride to huge success later in the decade.
title song on the album is more of a jazz soul ballad. On the second side of the album, the band returns to its more jazz fusion influence style of their earlier albums. 1973 was the year that the average white band debuted with their first album, which was called Show Your Hand. The album received very little notice, perhaps not that surprising considering that this was a funk band out of Scotland, but the band would demand that notice the following year with their second album, which contained their best known song, Pick Up the Pieces. A lesser known funk artist was Edwin Birdsong, sort of a lost musical innovator of the early 1970s. Birdsong was an organ player who fused his background in gospel music with a love of jazz, funk, and rock to create a hybrid sound that provides a template for the style of music that Prince would thrive on a decade later. All of Birdsong's recordings were completely ignored by the 70s public. So Birdsong wound up giving up trying to be a star himself and settled for steady work as a studio session musician. However, his recordings have been unearthed in recent years due to samples being used on modern EDM songs. 1973 was when he released his second album called Supernatural. Let's move on from here to the Motown sounds for the year. The raunchy new funk sound had made some of the more traditional soul style of Motown a bit out of fashion. And this had contributed to the fact that the Jackson 5 had been going through a period of chart struggles. The Jackson 5 released two new studio albums in 1973. The first of these albums was Skywriter, and the album was stuck to the traditional Motown pop style that the band was known for and became the band's worst-selling album to that point. The members of the band had begun to grow restless. So on their second album of 1973, they were able to move away from their previous formula and brought in new, harder funk workouts. This album, called Git, G-I-T, Get It Together, was a big success, mostly due to the proto-disco song on it called Dancing Machine. But it's the deeper cuts on this album that really are eye-opening for anyone who only knows the group's hits. The album includes two outstanding cover versions of a pair of deep funk workouts. Both of these are pulled off gloriously. The first of these was Hum Along and Dance, which was originally recorded by The Temptations.
And the other was, Mama, I got a brand new thing. Don't say no. Which was originally recorded by the minor Motown one-hit wonder group, The Undisputed Truth. Get It Together was the sound of the Jacksons growing up, and it's well worth a listen for any fan of the band or of funk in general. It's actually my favorite album from the Jacksons slash Jackson 5 because the filler material is all so well done. The 1973 solo material that also came out from members of the Jackson family are not worth seeking out. These include the third solo album for Michael, the second solo album for Jermaine, and the debut solo album for Jackie. None of these albums really had great material on them. The change in direction for the Jacksons was an attempt to steer the group towards the kind of success that the Temptations were having at the time with what was called their psychedelic soul style. The group released two new albums in 1973. The first of these was named Masterpiece, and was dominated by the vision of their songwriter and producer, Norman Whitfield, who was trying to build on the huge success he and the group had achieved with their 1972 classic song, Papa Was a Rolling Stone. The title song on Masterpiece was an epically arranged song that was over 13 minutes long, with only three minutes of the song actually including vocals from The Temptations. And the closing song on the album is an eight-minute ode to psychedelic drug trips. In between these songs are a series of songs heavy on social commentary. The song Masterpiece did well on the charts, but the other socially conscious songs on the album didn't do as well. So on the follow-up album later in 1973, which was titled 1990, Whitfield mixed in a few more traditional ballads. But despite this attempt at more radio-friendly material, only the song Let Down Your Hair wound up charting. Marvin Gaye set the gold standard for progressive soul music back in 1971 with his socially conscious and magnificently produced masterpiece, What's Going On? But by 1973, he had stepped back from the more topical material on that album 
to return to his roots as a musical sex symbol. He released the album Let's Get It On in 1973. The title cut for this album is so sexy that it probably single-handedly helped to contribute to the worldwide population boom. He then released an album of duets with Diana Ross titled Diana and Marvin in an effort to further broaden his success with more traditional pop-oriented audiences. I love the song Let's Get It On on the Let's Get It On album, but the deeper cuts on the album don't really do much for me, and I'm not a big fan of the pop approach that he took on the Diana Ross duet album. Diana Ross herself shied away from the hard funk and a lot of the more progressive and psychedelic soul sounds of the time. She continued to pursue a very mainstream pop sound on her 1973 album titled Touch Me in the Morning. Later in 1973, she released Last Time I Saw Him. On Last Time I Saw Him, Diana actually attempts to cover some country music style songs, but it wasn't a good fit for her, and the album wound up selling poorly. One of the key figures at Motown, Smokey Robinson, made his debut solo album after his long stint with his group, The Miracles. His 1973 debut was simply titled Smokey. Robinson wrote and co-produced the album, and he responded to the musical climate at the time by trying to tackle some socially conscious lyrics and by trying to incorporate rich cinematic musical arrangements though he did steer clear of any attempt at hard funk, choosing instead to pursue a more smooth soul sound. Truthfully, the album's songwriting is pretty clunky, especially given the high standards of Smokey Robinson's prior great work, but Smokey's voice is certainly in fine form on this album. Meanwhile, the miracles forged on without Smokey, bringing in a new lead singer, Billy Griffin, the first album from this new lineup was released in 1973 and was titled Renaissance. There's some decent songs on the album, but the song chosen for the album's first and only single is not really one of the stronger songs on the album, and its weak chart performance underlines that. With no real hits, the album was a commercial failure. Gladys Knight and the Pips started the year off as Motown artists, but they left the label in a contract dispute in February of the year, moving instead to Buddha Records. Motown released two new albums by the group that year anyway. The first one was built around their late 1972 hit, Neither One of Us, and was titled after that song. This album also featured a second hit single, Daddy Could Swear I Declare, that Motown released after the group had left,
With those two hits anchoring the album, neither one of us sold well, soaring to number one on the R&B charts and was a top 10 hit on the overall Billboard album chart. Motown followed that album up in 1973 with another album titled All I Need Is Time, which was filled with previously unreleased songs the group had recorded during their time at the label. But the title of the album was not a hit, and the label canceled any further singles from that album. Meanwhile, Gladys Knight and the Pips had recorded a new album at Buddha Records titled Imagination, and that album contained what would become the biggest hit of Gladys Knight's career and one of the landmark songs of the entire year, which was Midnight Train to Georgia. This song became Gladys Knight's signature song. It soared to number one on the Billboard pop charts and on the R&B charts. The album Imagination produced two additional big top five crossover pop hits that also topped the R&B charts and a fourth song that was a number six R&B hit and a moderate pop hit at number 28. Imagination would be the group's best-selling studio album. He's leaving, leaving on that midnight train to Georgia. Detroit and Memphis had dominated the sound of soul music in the 1960s. But in the 1970s, Philadelphia came to the forefront with a slick and smooth new soul style that utilized the rhythms of funk as the engine to drive its songs, but draped the melodies in lush orchestrations. The new Philly style would wind up being the bedrock on which disco music would be built as the decade moved on. Much as the Funk Brothers worked as the house band at Motown to hammer out flawless music for the label's singing stars, many of the singles out of Philadelphia were ankled by MFSB, short for Mother, Sister, Father, Brother. This group served as the house band for the producers Tom Bell and Gamble and Huff. Unlike the Funk Brothers, MFSB actually got to make albums under their own name, rather than only working as session players for other stars. The group released their first two albums under their own name in 1973. The first one was self-titled as simply MFSB, and the second album was titled Love is the Message. The second album featured the hit single TSOP, The Sound of Philadelphia, with vocals provided by The Three Degrees. This song is now better known because it was used as the theme song for the TV show Soul Train. The majority of the MFSB albums were simply instrumental, and they became a popular source for the backing tracks at the late 70s house parties where DJs began to innovate freestyle rap. 
Major Philadelphia soul artists that released albums in 1973 that will not be appearing on my top 20 include Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, who released their second album, Black and Blue. The OJs, who released the album Ship Ahoy. Ship Ahoy contained two top 10 hits, but the group in 1973 was much better known due to their hit Love Train, which had actually been released as a single in late 1972, but didn't hit the top of the pop charts until 1973. Also released in 1973 was the Stylistics album, Rock and Roll Baby. The new Philly sound wound up being the route through which the Spinners finally achieved their long sought after fame after decades of struggling to find any success. The group had started out as a doo-wop group in Michigan and they had spent time contracted to Motown, but their occasional singles there had very little success and they made their livings working as drivers and road managers for the label's more successful acts. The group finally left Motown in 1972 to join Atlantic Records, where they were connected with Thom Bell, one of the key producers and architects of the Philly Sound. The group's first Atlantic Records album in 1973 was self-titled as simply Spinners, and it was drenched in that Philly Sound and wound up containing five R&B hits, including three songs that topped the R&B charts, and two of which hit the top five on the pop charts as well. Now it's up to me To bow out gracefully Though you hold the key But baby Whenever you call me I'll be there Whenever you want me I'll be there Whenever you need me I'll be there I'll be Oates, despite being a white musical duo, were very much part of this Philadelphia sound as well in the early 70s. This might be why they were struggling at the time for an audience outside of their home city. They couldn't get played on many R&B stations because of the fact that they were white, but they couldn't get played on rock stations because they sounded like a black soul band. The group's second album, Abandoned Luncheonette, was released in 1973. This album contains one of the group's fan favorite songs, She's Gone, which became a local hit in Philadelphia and also got heavy airplay in Minneapolis. But the song didn't gain enough national airplay to become a hit song at the time. When the group finally actually gained mainstream success a few years later, She's Gone would be re-released and would chart at number eight three years after its initial release. This success would later lead the album Abandoned Luchinette to eventually sell over a million copies. But it took multiple reissues on CD and on Apple iTunes in order to reach that milestone 29 years after the first release of the album. Now it's Beyond the well-hyped realms of Motown and the Philly sound, soul music overall was in a major renaissance period. 
Al Green was recording for High Records in Memphis, and he was in the middle of a run of six consecutive number one soul albums. This streak had started in 1972 with Let's Stay Together, and Al Green followed that up with I'm Still in Love with You, which was the top-selling album of his entire career. But in my opinion, the best album of his career was his first of two albums that he released in 1973. This album was titled Call Me. Call Me doesn't have an individual song that is quite as iconic as the title song from those two 1972 albums that I mentioned. But the title song for this album, Call Me, was also a big hit, and the album also contained the big hit, Here I Am, Come and Take Me. And every single other song on this album is just a polished gem of outstanding vocal performances. Perhaps the biggest eye-opener on the album is to hear Al Green take on a pair of country music standards and completely transform the songs into his own. On this album, Al Green does Hank Williams' I'm So Lonesome, I Could Cry. Did you hear that Sounds too good to lie. The midnight train wind and low. I'm so lonesome, I could cry. And he also does Willie Nelson's Funny How Time Slips Away. It's been so long. And it seems like it was only yesterday. And both of these songs are just an absolute gem reimagined in the Al Green soul style. Green followed up this album with Living For You near the end of 1973. And this is another album full of outstanding vocal performances. Although the quality of the actual songs on the album are not as high as on these prior albums. Call Me got very high consideration for a place in my top 20 and was amongst the very last cuts. If I had made a top 25 list, I think this album would certainly have been on it. Aretha Franklin released Hey Now Hey, The Other Side of the Sky in 1973, which is not one of her more heralded albums, but I have to say it turned out to be an absolute delight to listen to. The album was started as a project on which Franklin intended to record a straight-up jazz vocal album. And the songs on the album that are in that style are a marvelous example of what a gifted singer like Aretha could accomplish in that genre. 
But during the recording sessions, the producers and Franklin got sidetracked with some deep soul songs that they were fooling around with, and they wound up recording those songs too, and they wound up adding them to the album because they were such good performances. The result is an album which is a bit schizophrenic, and that schizophrenia is highlighted with the sort of surrealist cover that they chose for the album. Individually, every song on this album is an absolute gem, but as a unit, they don't really hold together into any sort of coherent form. After years of toil as a hardworking band that occasionally would score a hit, the Isley Brothers finally came into their own with their first true blockbuster of an album, 3 Plus 3. This album would become a million seller on the strength of three top 10 soul hits, with the biggest of these also crossing over into the pop top 10. That song was That Lady, which you still frequently hear used in movie soundtracks and on TV commercials. Barry White made his debut solo record, I've Got So Much to Give, and he made his second album in 1973 as well, Stone Gone. After over a decade in the music business, as a member of singing groups, as well as time as an A&R executive, songwriter, and producer for other groups, White was able to present a brand new original music vision to the public that he wrote, produced, and sang all himself. White used a 40-piece orchestra he dubbed the Love Unlimited Orchestra to record epic-length cinematic-style song arrangements, with White slow-jamming his vocal delivery with sensual, evocative lyrics to create the romantic, love-making soundtrack of an entire generation. Gonna give you all of me as much as you can stay. Big love to you right now, that's all. One of the more surprising successes of the year came with the self-titled album from the Pointer Sisters. Not surprising because the album wasn't extremely good, it was. And it wasn't surprising because the sisters weren't supremely talented, they were. The surprise came because the album simply doesn't fit neatly into any of the other little genre niches that I've discussed for the year. The Pointer Sisters' debut album, 
mixes songs with old school vocal jazz arrangements, along with New Orleans Boogie Woogie and funk. The album includes the hit song, Yes We Can Can, written by New Orleans legend Alam Toussaint. But the song is pumped up with a modern funk back end to make for a very infectious and original sound. And we gotta help you man be a better man with the kindest that we give. I know we can make it. I know that we can. I know darn well. And we can make it out. Well, yes, we can. Well, we can, can. Yes, we can, can. Oh, why can't we if we want it? Yes, we can, can. I know we can make it work. I know we can make it if we try. Well, yes, we can. I know we can, can. Yes, we can. We got your mind. Well, yes, we can. I know we can, can. The Pointer Sisters' debut album also include old-school 50s rock and roll, a bit of gospel, and a smattering of more contemporary soul sounds. On every style of song on this album, the sisters put on full display the gift for engaging harmonic singing that would score them hit songs well into the disco era and into early 80s during the dance pop era. Not as commercially successful, but an interesting footnote was that 1973 was when the debut album came out from the singer Sylvester. Sylvester would go on to have a string of disco hits in the late 70s and early 80s, but in 1973, he was fronting a rock and roll band, and he used the Pointer Sisters as backing singers for his band as it toured America, and he released the album Sylvester and His Hot Band. Sylvester was influenced by David Bowie to adopt an androgynous stage image. This androgynous image went over well in San Francisco, where he was based at the time. But the combination of him being a black man in rock music and his gender-bending persona often made for hostile crowd reactions as he toured more conservative sections of America. His debut album, and also the 1973 follow-up album called Bizarre, both sold poorly, and he wound up being dropped by his label. But as I mentioned, he would later reemerge as a disco star. Let's move on now to a different genre. Country rock was a major phenomenon of the era. So last episode, when I was covering a lot of the singer-songwriters of the era, I wound up leaving out a number of them that were pursuing a more country rock style sound in order to include them in this segment. Among these country rock style singer-songwriters that will not be appearing in my top 20 are Graham Parsons, who was one of the early advocates of what he liked to call cosmic American music that caused him to be one of the innovators of the country rock sound. Graham Parsons fused country music with rock, pop, folk, and soul sounds. Before going solo, Parsons had recorded albums previously with International Submarine Band, with The Birds, and he had formed the Flying Burrito Brothers. Finally, in 1973, 
he released his solo debut album, which he titled GP. For his new work, Parsons added a female voice to his band, a relatively obscure young singer at the time by the name of Emmy Lou Harris. The vocal work on the album GP is great, and musically, it would fall much closer to the country side of country rock than it does towards the rock side, with a little touch of soul infusion in it as well. I do like Graham Parsons, but I'm not big enough of a fan for him to really have competed for a top 20 spot. And baby, since you walked out of my life, I've never felt so low. The singer Don McLean, remembered mostly for his song American Pie, released a fairly cheesy album of honky-tonk-style music in 1973. About half of the songs are bluegrass and mountain folk standards, and the other half were original songs written in a similar style. But I can't personally say that I think Don McLean is very good at this style of music. But then again, I'm not a fan of Don McLean in general. Buffy St. Marie was in a career mode at the time in which she was recording in Nashville, and she was working with the Memphis Horns, and she was arranging her music in a sort of folk country bar band style at the time. Her 1973 album was Quiet Places, but I can't say I thought it was a very good album for her. Neil Young released a live album in 1973 titled Time Fades Away. This album was recorded during a tour he had done in support of his Harvest album and featured his new band, The Stray Gators. Neil Young made a prominent place in his musical arrangements for his steel guitar and slide guitar player, Ben Keith. And this sound definitely pulls Neil into the country rock category at the time. Time Fades Away is a perfectly enjoyable album, though personally, when I listen to Neil Young live, I tend to gravitate to his work with Crazy Horse, in which he puts on epic displays of guitar distortion. Michael Stanley was an Ohio singer-songwriter with a roots rock style. He never became a major star, but he gained a lot of respect within the overall community of musicians at the time. And this respect shows through the number of people who were working with him on his self-titled 1973 debut album, as well as his second album, which also came out the same year. On his second album, he was produced by the same producer that was working with the Eagles. And he had Joe Walsh sitting in on guitar. And most of Manassas working as the rest of the studio band. The album also featured appearances by David Sanborn, 
Richard Furry of Buffalo Springfield fame, and Dan Fogelberg. Despite this who's who of outstanding musical players, I didn't really find much to excite me on the album. John Fogarty released his first solo album after splitting up with Creedence Clearwater Revival. Fogarty, at the time, decided to make no mention of his own name on the cover of the album. And the album cover wound up simply featuring a silhouette of his new band and its name, the Blue Ridge Rangers. The album contained no new Fogarty songs and was simply an album of cover songs by country songwriters he admired. Another album of country music covers was done by singer-songwriter Jonathan Edwards, who was most famous for his 1971 hit Sunshine. This album was titled Have a Good Time for Me, and I didn't find a whole lot on it to excite me. Michael Nesmith, formerly of the Monkees, went all in on the country rock sound at the time. 1973 was when he released his seventh solo album overall and his sixth solo album for the RCA label. The album was called Pretty Much Your Standard Ranch Stash. It was his worst-selling album to that date, and he wound up being dropped by RCA after the failure of this album. Arlo Guthrie's 1973 album was Last of the Brooklyn Cowboys, and he definitely drifted away from his more traditional folk leanings into a much more country music feel on this album. It's not one of my favorite albums by Guthrie. It's a bit hard to definitively place John Denver within these articles as either a country artist, a folk artist, or a country rock artist. He certainly was a singer-songwriter, and maybe I could have placed him within that segment. John Denver had started out his career in traditional folk music, but most of his 70s albums charted in the country album charts. And beginning in 1974, he would go on to have a string of huge successes on the country singles chart. Despite this success, he was never strongly embraced by the Nashville traditionalists. Anyway, his 1973 album, Farewell Andromeda, is not one that charted in the country albums chart. But the album did sell reasonably well. Perhaps the hippie-style astrological and Greek mythology depending on how you want to interpret the album title, was simply too much for country audiences to tolerate. But the album does have a fair number of John Denver's original songs with his typical country music themes to them. John Prine, I could have also well put into my earlier singer-songwriter section, but his music to me is also a key influence on the eventual rise of what is now called alt-country or simply Americana music. So I am mentioning him here instead. His third album was released in 1973 titled Sweet Revenge. John Prine was still unable to repeat the end-to-end -end brilliance that he had displayed on his debut album. 
But this third album from him is at least half brilliant, with the other half merely being enjoyably good. I always love John Prine. And all the angels say just before you passed away, these were the very last words that you said. Please don't bury me down in the cold, cold ground. No, I'm gonna have them cut me up and pass me all around. Throw my brain in a hurricane and the blind can have my eyes. And the deaf can take both of my ears if they don't mind the sound. So in that last segment, I covered a number of singer-songwriters that were pursuing country rock sounds. But really, when most people talk of country rock, most people tend to focus on the full bands rather than on solo performers. And there were certainly a lot of country rock groups with albums out in 1973. And in this segment, I'll be covering some of the ones that are not going to be showing up in my eventual top 20 list. The Eagles, of course became the major commercial face of the country rock genre. But in 1973, that legacy was very much not yet written. The band had a successful beginning with their 1972 self-titled debut album, which had produced three top 40 hits. But like many bands, the Eagles had encountered a sophomore slump with their follow-up album that came out in 1973. The album Desperado topped out at only number 41 on the album charts. And the two singles that were released from it both missed the top 40. Although Tequila Sunrise did become a moderate-sized hit on the easy listening charts. It's another tequila sunrise Staring slowly across the sky Said goodbye Just a hired hand Working on the dreams he planned to try The days go by The interesting thing is that the title cut of the album, Desperado, was never released as a single, since record executives at the time were convinced that the song was too downbeat to succeed on radio. But of course, over time, the song Desperado became one of the band's most recognizable, beloved, and widely covered songs. So despite its slow start, the Desperado album eventually went on to sell over two million copies. Desperado, why don't you come to your senses? You've been out riding fences for so long now Oh, you're a hard one But I know that you got your reasons These things that are pleasing you can hurt you somehow Poco was another pretty major band of the country rock genre. Although the band would have fairly limited commercial success until they finally scored a pair of hits later in 1979. Poco had been started by two former members of Buffalo Springfield. The band's founding bass player, Randy Meisner, left after their first album and wound up becoming one of the founding members of the Eagles. 
Meisner was replaced in Poco by Timothy B. Schmidt, who would later replace Meisner and the Eagles after Meisner quit that band in 1977. In 1973, Poco released their fifth studio album called Crazy Eyes. The album wasn't a commercial success, and no singles were released from the album. Although at the time, it did chart slightly better than the Eagles' Desperado album. And Crazy Eyes itself is a pretty good song. Ozark Mountain Daredevils released their debut album in December of 1973. The album was self-titled. The album wound up containing the band's second biggest hit of their entire career with If You Wanna Get to Heaven. If you wanna get to heaven The band Grin was another country rock band of the early 70s, although this band has become fairly obscure. Grin was fronted by Niels Lofgren, a longtime member of Crazy Horse as well, and also known because he became a member of the E Street Band in the mid-80s. Grin released their final two of their four career albums in 1973, the first of which was called All Out, and the other one was called Gone Crazy. Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airmen have a fun and irreverent style that mixes rockabilly with Western swing. The band's third album came out in 1973 and was titled Country Casanova. This album is highlighted by a great cover of an old Western swing novelty song, Smoke, Smoke, Smoke That Cigarette. Now it ain't cause I don't smoke myself and I don't figure it'll hurt my health. I've been smoking for 25 years, ain't dead yet. But them nicotine slaves, they're all the same at a petting party or poker game. Everything's gotta stop when you smoke that cigarette. Smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette. Bum, 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 and if you fuck yourself to death. Tell St. Peter at the Golden Gate, you just hate to make him wait. But you just gotta have another cigarette. And it's also got the song, Everybody's Doing It. It's a very fun album. It didn't make my top 20, but I still highly recommend this album to anybody that loves country rock music. A bit less in the spotlight was a movement of hippie musicians embracing bluegrass and creating what these days is often called progressive bluegrass or newgrass. This sound was well out of the commercial spotlight but there were a number of bands pursuing this sound in 1973, including Mule Skinner, who released their debut album that year. Mule Skinner featured David Grisman and Peter Rowan amongst its members. 
1973 also brought out the fourth album by the now sort of obscure but very influential new grass band, The Seldom Scene, with their album Old Train. Personally, I love new grass music. Although these albums did not make my top 20, I enjoy listening to all of them. The hardest cut for me in the country rock genre for 1973 was the fourth album from New Riders of the Purple Sage, which was titled The Adventures of Panama Red. My woman said, hey, Pedro, you're acting crazy like a clown. Nobody feels like working. Panama Red is back in town. Panama Red, Panama Red. It's your woman, then it rub your head. Panama Red, Panama Red. On his white horse, Mescalito, he comes freezing through town. Bet your woman is up in bed with old Panama Red. In addition to that stone-cold classic title song, I also love the song Lonesome L.A. Cowboy and also Kick in the Head, which was written by Robert Hunter, one of the primary lyricists for The Grateful Dead. It's a really great album, although there are a couple of weaker songs on it as well that kept it from actually making it into my top 20. I'd go crazy if I wasn't so lazy. Having spent my last two segments on country rock, let's move on and discuss the more traditional country and Western styles of 1973. Despite my overall high praise for the music of 1973s in multiple genres, I found the year to be pretty sparse on high quality country music. The outlaw country music was still gaining momentum at the time, which was a good thing because mainstream country music was pretty anemic in 1973 best-selling country song of the year was Conway Twitty's You've Never Been This Far Before. And I can feel your body tremble as you wonder what this moment holds in store. Bum, bum, bum. And as I put my arms around you, I can tell you've never been this far before. That song came off of one of his three albums that he released in 1973. It's a perfectly competent but entirely generic song, which, truth be told, is kind of how I would describe Conway Twitty's entire career, though I must acknowledge he was a huge star of the genre for decades. The number one country album of the year was Charlie Rich's Behind Closed Doors. Like Twitty, Charlie Rich released three new studio albums in 1973. Perhaps this volume of recording is why all three albums are all so bad. There simply didn't seem to be enough quality songs available to keep up with this sort of rapid output. The title song for Charlie Rich's album, Behind Closed Doors, was the number two overall song for 1973 in the country genre. 
And it's a much better song than Conway Twitty's song, in my opinion. Behind Closed Doors became Charlie Rich's career signature, and it's highlighted by quality songwriting. But the schmaltzy early 70s Nashville country production really hasn't aged well. And when we get behind closed doors, when she lets her Jean Pruitt was the big female country star of the year with her song, Satin Sheets. It was the number three overall country song of the year. And the Satin Sheets album was the number two overall country album of the year. Satin Sheets has a solid old school country feel with the emotional heft being delivered by a classic steel guitar sound rather than the syrupy orchestral strings that too many country ballads were being ruined by at the time. Satin sheets to lie on, satin pillows to cry on. Still, I'm not happy, don't you see? Big wouldn't manage to sustain her success very well. She had a few other hits during the remainder of the decade, but eventually would abandon her singing career to focus on a successful career as a cookbook writer. I, I did enjoy listening to the Johnny Cash album released in 1973, which was titled Johnny Cash and His Woman, which was, of course, a duet album with his wife, June Carter Cash. I'm not sure that the title of the album would be seen as particularly politically correct these days. It's a fun album, not necessarily memorable, but entirely enjoyable. I mentioned the outlaw country movement, which was still bubbling under in 1973, but there were a couple of albums that I thought fit into this genre. One of these would be Jerry Jeff Walker and the Los Gonzo Band, who released Viva Terlingua, which was sort of a live album, although it had been recorded live without an actual audience in the theater. This album captures Walker's laid back and loose Tex-Mex style of country blues, and it features his outstanding and legendary cover of the song Up Against the Wall, Redneck Mother. It's a good album, but it could use a little bit more depth of great songs than it actually has, in my opinion. Waylon Jennings had made a major mark for the outlaw movement in 1972 with his album Good Hearted Woman. This album would contain the song Ladies Love Outlaws, which is the song from which 
the genre known as outlaw country gained its name. Jennings followed this up in 1973 with his album Lonesome, Henri, and Mean, and also another album, Honky Tonk Heroes. Both of these albums have a couple of outstanding songs on them, but both of them also have a fair amount of weak filler that kept them from competing for a top 20 spot. My favorite country and western album of the year, and the only one that got serious consideration for a spot on my top 20, was the new album from Willie Nelson titled Shotgun Willie. Willie Nelson was in full conflict with his label at this point. He had refused their contract extension offer in 1972, and the label was refusing to release any new music from him, though his contract hadn't actually lapsed yet. This ongoing conflict was keeping him from signing with a new label, even though he was ready to leave. During this time, Willie Nelson moved from Nashville back to Austin, Texas. And in Austin, Willie was surrounded by Texas hippies. The loose, organic, and experimental attitude towards music of these hippies helped Willie to find a renewed faith and love for songwriting and for finding his own unique musical voice rather than continuing to try and meld himself to the Nashville template. During this time, Willie also met Jerry Wexler of Atlantic Records. And Wexler was able to use his power within the industry to help Willie get out of his RCA contract and to sign with Atlantic. Shotgun Willie would be the first album from Willie Nelson on Atlantic Records under his new record deal. And it would be the first country music album that Atlantic Records ever released. As it turned out, Shotgun Willie didn't really sell well, but it became ground zero for Willie's new looser roadhouse style of music. And in time, this new approach would transform Willie Nelson into one of America's greatest musical legends. The album includes Willie Nelson's cover of a song that would become one of his concert staples to this day, Whiskey River. Whiskey River, take my mind Don't let her memory torture me Whiskey River, don't run away from Nashville country music, perhaps the next logical step is to discuss Southern rock of the era. Southern rock would meld the sound of Southern electric blues with soul music and with country music influences, all infused into a new brand of rock music with a high frequency of guitar solos. 1973, in my opinion, is really when Southern rock emerged as a genre of its own. The godfathers of Southern Rock were the Allman Brothers Band. And the Allman Brothers themselves 
took on some sonic changes due to the death of their founding guitar player and band leader, Dwayne Allman. Meanwhile, new bands from the South with a similar affinity for blues rock were emerging. There's no way to move forward from that introduction without acknowledging the fact that the Allman Brothers Band will be featured in my eventual top 20. You'll have to wait and see, though, exactly where they place. There's also a second Southern Rock-associated band that will appear in my top 20, the musical elements in common with the style, though that band isn't actually from the South. But there are also other major Southern Rock albums to discuss. And these included the debut album from Leonard Skinnerd, which the album was titled, pronounced Leonard Skinnerd, with the dictionary phonetic notations on the name. In my opinion, it was the emergence of Leonard Skinnerd that really cemented Southern rock as its own genre. The Allman Brothers Band were the original Southern rock band, but until other bands followed that style, it wasn't really a genre. It was simply one band's unique style. But once other bands start hopping onto the same style, you actually have a new genre. I gave Leonard Skinnerd's debut album due consideration for a spot in my top 20. It's a solid debut with four songs that remain to this day as high rotation staples of classic rock radio. Those would be Tuesday's Gone, Gimme Three Steps, Simple Man, and probably most famously the song Freebird. Another Southern rock band was the Marshall Tucker Band, who also released their self-titled debut album in 1973. This album would contain one of their most popular songs, Can't You See, which mines the blues rock vibe so important to Southern rock. But the songwriting of the band leans deeply onto country music songwriting traditions. A jump off, nobody gonna know can't you see? Oh, can't you see? What that woman lord she been doing to me? Can't you see? Can't you see? What that woman been doing to me? Charlie Daniels would release his third album in 1973, titled Honey in the Rock. And while Daniels these days is considered to be pretty much a mainstream country music act, or perhaps an outlaw country music act, his early albums were very much rock-influenced. And Honey in the Rock sounds a lot more like southern rock bands of the period than it does anything coming out of Nashville or even out of the rising outlaw country movement of the time. The band Black Oak, Arkansas would release two albums in 1973 the first of which was their fourth studio album under their band name of Black Oak, Arkansas. The group had released an album before that using the name The Nobody Else before changing their name to Black Oak, Arkansas. 
1973 studio album was titled High on the Hog. And they also released a live album in 1973 called Raunch and Roll Live. The live album contains four previously unreleased songs by the band. With their label hoping to capture the live energy of the band to help the band connect better to the public. The studio album High on the Hog contains Black Oak, Arkansas's only major radio success, which was the song Jim Dandy. Jim Many of the Southern rock bands that I spoke of in my last segments were big influences on a lot of the type of jam band music that I gravitate to. But there were also other bands of this era that were also blazing the trail for the eventual rise of the jam band movement. The Grateful Dead, of course, were the definitive jam band, and they are my favorite band of all time. The Grateful Dead released two albums in 1973. But despite my love of the band, Neither of these albums will be appearing in my top 20. First album of the year from The Grateful Dead was a live album, which was called History of the Grateful Dead, Volume 1, Bear's Choice. Bear, nickname for Owsley Stanley, the Grateful Dead sound man of the time, and one of the most renowned LSD chemists of all time. This album contains seven songs captured from two shows by the band that were performed in February of 1970 at the Fillmore East. The songs selected for the release were a bit befuddling and frustrating to many of the loyal deadheads, since this album was dominated by cover tunes, and the first half of this album being all acoustic songs. It should be noted, though, that this album would be the final one to feature the Grateful Dead's vocalist and organ player, Pigpen. The second half of this album winds up being a tribute to his contributions to the band, with the album side containing only two songs, both of which were typical songs which highlight Pigpen's strength as a singer. Both of these songs were blues covers, Smoke Stack Lightning and Hard to Handle. There never wound up being a History of the Grateful Dead Volume 2 album after this album. Perhaps that was because this album wound up being the band's final album under their Warner Brothers contract. And the album, I believe, was probably turned into the label merely as a way for them to complete their contract before forming their own label for a while. This Bears Choice album really isn't as bad of an album as I've heard a lot of fans make it out to be. The band's playing is in fine form on all the songs, but I do agree with the critical fans who find that the album is a bit of an odd hodgepodge of song selections. 
that don't really hold together and flow naturally as a great live album should. The second album out in 1973 from The Grateful Dead would be their first studio release since 1970. And it would be the first album released under their own new label, Grateful Dead Records. This new album was titled Wake of the Flood. And to me, Wake of the Flood is the album on which the Grateful Dead earned the band's longtime reputation for making quote-unquote bad studio albums. Wake of the Flood contains all original material, and they were extremely high-quality original songs at that. The album is full of songs that many fans consider personal favorites to hear in concert and made for major highlights during the band's concert for many years to come. However, on the studio versions of these songs, there's a noticeable cumbersome slog to the playing that really pulls down the energy that these songs have in live performance. Especially disappointing to me is the song Weather Report Suite, which in concert at the time was a song that would lead to some of the most nimble and beautiful playing that the band ever accomplished. The plowman is broad as the back of the land he sowed. As he dances the circular track of the plow ever known. That the work of his days measures more than the planting and growing. album, the Weather Report Suite, is just absolutely flat and ponderous. It's a big disappointment. Weather Report Suite has tremendous lyric craft by John Perry Barlow, who collaborated on the song with Bob Weir. The delicate, quiet beauty of the opening segment of the song, followed by the intricate, nimble playing in the more upbeat Let It Grow section, make it one of my favorite Grateful Dead songs. As I mentioned, the studio version just has none of that magical finger work by Jerry, nor the rhythmic punch underneath it. If they could have captured even a fraction of this magic in the studio, Wake of the Flood could have easily captured my number one slot instead of having been cut completely from the top 20. Despite the fact that I love every song on this album, when I hear them in concert, I could not justify a place in my top 20 for this album with its disappointing studio versions of these songs. However, there is one Grateful Dead-related album that is in my top 20, but neither of the albums that actually appeared under the band's name. Other bands releasing albums at the time that were influential on the modern jam band scene include Traffic. Traffic released two albums in 1973. The first was a studio album called Shootout at the Fantasy Factory. This album contains only five songs during its 39 minutes of runtime, 
which certainly makes it a prototypical album of the jam band genre. Traffic is another one of my favorite bands. The playing on this album is absolutely fine, but the songs they played on this album are all completely forgettable. Traffic's second album for the year was a live album titled On the Road. The European version of On the Road was a double album, but the American version was cut down to only a single LP containing only four songs, and the formatting on the album forced them to edit down the version of Low Spark of High Heel Boys in order to fit. The editing removed two and a half minutes of the song that it appeared in the live concert version that it was taken from and that appeared on the European double album version. The European version of this album might well have had a fighting chance to compete for a spot in my top 20 because the playing is great on it. Like I said, Traffic was a great band. But as I mentioned from the start, I like to use American release dates, and the only American release date for On the Road in 1973 was for the single LP format, not for the European double album. The band released their fifth studio album in 1973, titled Moondog Matinee. Moondog Matinee consisted entirely of cover versions of R&B and blues songs. The band, of course, performs all of these songs well. They were well known for their playing chops. But this album certainly contains no new material that is critical for any collection of the band's most important work. Keyboard player and singer Merle Saunders, who was a friend of Jerry Garcia and would play in a number of side bands with Garcia over the years, released his album Fire Up in 1973. This album featured Jerry Garcia and Tom Fogarty as part of his studio band. It's a very fun jazz funk style of album. And I like it very much, but I did not like it enough to put it into my top 20. released their sixth album in 1973, titled Ma. Rare Earth was past their hit-making days by the time this album came out, but they were still a very enjoyable band, in my opinion. The title song for this album, Ma, is a psychedelic funk song that runs for a bit over 17 minutes long and takes up the entire first side of this album. I didn't put the album in, the in my top 20, but I do very much enjoy this album, and I would recommend it to anybody that loves this kind of extended musical style. Her 
The supergroup known as Derek and the Dominoes had only managed to stay together for one studio album that came out in 1970. That, of course, was Layla and Other Assorted Love Songs. But in 1973, they released In Concert, a live album that came from the band's promotional tour for the Layla album. It is a truly great album, and it was very tough for me to cut it. However, there's a real tragedy to this album, being that Dwayne Allman wasn't a part of the show that this album was recorded at. The real magic to the Derek and the Dominoes studio album was the interplay between Dwayne and Eric Clapton. But that interplay is lost on these live versions of the songs without him being in the band. This album captures some great performances anyway. If Dwayne had actually been playing at this show, it might well have elevated this to become one of the greatest live albums of all time. As it was, it was a very good album that competed for my top 20 spot and was a tough cut, but that I did ultimately eliminate. Another supergroup of the time was Beck, Bogert, and Apice, which was fronted by Jeff Beck on guitar and had Vanilla Fudge bass player Tim Bogert and Cactus drummer Carmen Apice. This group released one self-titled studio album in 1973 and did a tour, which they captured on a live album that was only actually released in Japan, which is also where the show for the live album had been recorded. The group's studio album wouldn't really do anything to convince somebody that they were a jam band. It's hard blues rock, with the longest song going only to five and a half minutes long, and the rest coming in a minute or two less than that. But that rare live album, which is easily heard in this internet age, shows why I throw the band into this genre. Because in concert, the band's original songs stretch out to nearly 11 minutes and the live album contains a cover of the song Morning Dew, which stretches out to over 14 minutes. There are a few pretty good songs on their studio album, including a pretty interesting rocked up version of Superstition, which Jeff Beck was a co-creator of, having created the original groove for that song while he was working as a studio musician recording with Stevie Wonder. But the album also contains some weak songs that kept it from really becoming a contender for the top 20. Please come back next week for episode three, where I will continue to review the music of 1973, and I will proceed into the blues and hard rock genres. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll be back.